Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Eddie Vihanna. Uh, and Eddie is a very interesting guy, and his, his actual position is uh, public relations for Evoke, or how would, uh, how would we define this? I'm the uh, director of business development for, for Evoke Wellness. Business, okay. And for those who are not familiar with Evoke Wellness, it's, um, it's a facility in Cohasset, right on the Cohasset-Hingham line. And it's kind of way up and back, so you could drive down Route 3A and Cohasset and never know where it was, which is good because it's isolated and and it's a it's a well-run, top-notch facility. I've done a tour of it and I've seen the whole the whole unit and it's got its own pharmacy, doctors, nurses, everything imaginable for people who are in recovery. But Eddie, before we get into that, let's talk about you. Um, tell us about you, how you got into this business and what your life was like going up to this, to this job. So like, let's go back to, you know, when um, you, are you in recovery now? Yes, I am. I am in recovery. I've been in recovery. Uh, just celebrated 11 years on September 5th. Okay. And when did you, when did you first get um, addicted? Were you substance use disorder or alcohol or? Where were you? For me, it was it was substances. I mean, for me, Tony, it was, it was a little of everything. I was kind of that guy that, like, you know, I was like the guinea pig. Like, if you put it in front of me, like, I did it, whether I liked it or not. You know, anything that kind of took me out of myself, I was willing to try. Um, I picked up at, a, you know, a pretty early age. And it did. It started with, you know, with, with alcohol for me as far as, you know, substances. I mean, I wasn't a big drinker in high school. It just kind of wasn't my thing. Uh, you know, it was easy for me to hide drugs rather than alcohol from like my father. So I felt like that substances were, were the way to go for me because I wouldn't come home like smelling like alcohol. So at 14, you know, at high school, you know, it was that, that first weekend of high school, like, Hey, you want to come out and drink with us? I said, absolutely. I'd love to do that. Even though I didn't really like alcohol, you know, and I went to that, you know, cemetery and, and I drank in Arlington and, and went there and, you know, after that, it was just, it was off and running after that, you know, 14 to, you know, pretty much 31 years old, you know, I pretty much. So you started when you were 14 and, um, and was it an everyday thing or was it a once in a week on weekend thing kind of? I mean, it started off in the beginning, kind of like, you know, I would just, you know, drink and, you know, eventually it was, it was pot a couple of weeks after, um, you know, I drank in high school. And then once I tried pot once, <laughs> it was an everyday thing, you know, after that, it, you know, it slowly progressed for me, you know, onto hotter and hotter drugs as the years went on. And I'd say around 17 years old, I, you know, I started getting into, you know, much harder drugs, which, you know, was eventually like my drug of choice, you know, and it was something that I, you know, I ended up using for, you know, the, the remainder of, of my addiction, you know, up until I got clean in, in 2012. And your drug of choice was what? Opiates, you know, I was part of the, Opiates. The, yeah, part of the Oxycontin, you know, Oxycontin era, you know, I grew up in Somerville, so, you know, Oxycontin was, was rampant once it got, you know, once it got out in the streets in that area. Um, I had an accident um my senior year in high school uh going into my senior year of high school and 
I got prescribed Percocet and, you know, I kind of fell in love with it. I obviously had that addictive personality and that mentality already. So you give it, you know, a 17 year old kid, a, a bottle of Percocet and, you know, I said, take one every four hours. And, you know, I've read it backwards. It's like take four every one hour. That was me, you know, and I just, you know, I, I ran out of that prescription really quick and Oxycontin hit the scene pretty, pretty soon after that. And it was off and running for me for, for a pretty long time, you know. So we're talking probably the like 2007 to 2010, somewhere in that range. For so for me, yeah, no, I mean that was the OxyContin was probably from two that from 1998 to 2010, 2011, right around they stopped making them, and then I graduated on to you know I started doing like you know heroin and and, and some you know Park Thirties. That was the the replacement okay. after they took OxyContin off the shelves. Where'd you get the money? I mean, I found ways to get it, uh, you know, whatever, whatever I needed to do to get it. I did it. Um, you know, I always worked. I was a worker. So I kind of had two jobs pretty much my entire life. You know, I worked on uh, construction for years and I, you know, I was a bouncer down in Boston for a long time. So I had two jobs and, you know, eventually, you know, when I couldn't support my habit, you know, through the, through the income that, you know, I found other ways, whether it was trying to, you know, trying to sell drugs or it was trying to, you know, committing crimes, whatever, whatever I needed to do to get that extra dollar I was willing to do, stealing from family. I mean, kind of, you name it, I did it. You know, there was really no, there were no boundaries to what, you know, that, that, that feeling of not being sick would, would have for me, for me to get what I needed to get. So would you say that the drug controlled you and that you didn't control the drug? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The disease called the shots, you know, that, that drug called the shots and on my day to day life, you know, I woke up every day and I didn't know what the plan was. I just knew the only plan I needed to figure out was how I was not going to feel, feel sick or, or, you know, get dope sick. So that disease told me do whatever you need to do to get into it. I had no control over it. You know, I knew right from wrong. I had morals, you know, I was grow I grew up with morals and values. I, I understood right from wrong. I understood you know, the, the things that, you know, I shouldn't do to people, but that feeling of being sick just overpowered it. And I was willing to do whatever it took not to feel that way. Yeah. For those who <clears throat> never experienced dope sick, which I hope a lot of you have never done that, but uh, the best definition I heard was it's like having the flu on steroids. You, you go for, instead of one or two days, you might go three, four, five days and throwing up and being just sick as a dog, 10 times worse than the flu. So you can imagine how difficult that, that whole experience is. So people will do anything to avoid from that happening, you know, to get more oxy. And, and of course, today, half the oxy pills on the street are counterfeit. And they're not even what they say they are. They're laced with fentanyl. And now it's actually much more dangerous. If you were born 10 years later, you might not be with us right now. So, um, so what was the big motivation? When did you, what, what was the aha moment that's got you to stop? You know, Tony, I had, you know, I had a lot of, I, I don't want to say a lot of aha moments, but you know, I had a daughter. Um, my daughter turned one when I was in detox when I got clean. And, you know, I had a daughter in 2011 you know, that was kind of like the tail end, you know, the worst part of, you know, that run, you know, things were getting really, really bad for me. I was homeless, you know, people didn't want me around, family didn't want me around. So it was getting really, really bad. And I hadn't seen my daughter in a little while. I wasn't allowed to, you know, which was perfectly understandable due to my condition and my inability to be a dad. Um, and 
the aha moment was like waking up on a, on a park bench, you know, it was raining out and I hadn't seen my daughter and I just, I just had enough for me. It was, I just didn't want to live that life anymore. I just had this, these better plans for me, these, these bigger visions for where my life was supposed to go and was supposed to be. And my daughter deserved to have a father in her life that was going to be there for her. And that was the biggest part for me was I just wanted to be a really, really good dad. Uh, no matter what that took. And, you know, I was willing to go through, you know, hell and high water to get there. And that was the the turning point for me. She was my biggest motivation for sure. And at some point it had to be about myself. And, you know, I learned that through recovery was that, you know, my daughter can be the biggest motivation for me, you know, to, to, to do that. But in order for me to stay in recovery and maintain like the things that I have in my life today, I need to do it for myself. I need to want it for myself more than other people want it for me. You know, my, I think my family wanted for a long time for me to get better, but I was just, I didn't want it for myself. I didn't believe in myself. I had no love for myself. And you know, a little girl, you know, sparked that little bit of like, all right, you deserve, you deserve a little bit more than what you're settling for. And so she, she was that catalyst for sure. That's good. And she's now a teenager probably, right? She just turned 12. 12. Yeah. Just turned 12. She's a tween. She's a tween. She's almost a teenager. You know, your life will change soon. I guess that's what I hear. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, there's nothing better though, you know. Uh nothing better. Maybe grandchildren when that happens. Not ready, Tony. Let's not go there yet, buddy. Yeah, we, we won't. We won't. <laughs> For those that can't see Eddie, Eddie actually has a beard that's not white. I uh, I've been hanging around too many guys that have white beards. So he's a he's a youngster. Um so did you go to detox or did you go cold turkey or how did you do it? I went to detox, you know, my journey was, uh, my journey was a long journey in, in the early stages of, of, you know, my recovery, you know, phase. I went to, I went to a detox and traditionally uh, I had been to the same detox a couple of times and I had the same plan every time I went there before. It was like, I just need to get off the streets for a little bit. Uh, I had really no intentions of staying there no motivation. And, you know, the guy would ask me every time, like, you know, what, what are you going to do from here? And I said, I'm going home, you know, like I'm going to get out of here. And this last time when I went and he asked me like, what are you, what are you doing? The same guy did my intake, you know, the, the, the previous times that I had been there and he was like, what are you willing to do? And I said, you know, honestly, this time I'm willing to do whatever. So I'm, I'm like here for the long haul. So, you know, I did a, a detox, I did a 28 days in, in a residential I went to a, um, a TSS, which is a holding while I waited to get into a halfway house in, in Malden. And I went to that halfway house. I completed six months in that halfway house, went to three months in a three quarter house attached to that. And I spent nine months in sober living after all that as well. So pretty much roughly around 18 months, you know, or so of, of some kind of structure in my life, you know, kind of before I went and got an apartment and started doing, you know, know a member a, a lone member of society for the most part not not having to come home and get drug tested or anything like that and not yeah, right. you, <clears throat> you say home you were homeless and how did you get into a how did what what the home being the halfway houses yeah or? yeah yeah well home being you know my first apartment my first apartment when, when i was clean you know not having the sober house and or anything like that i you know I, I moved in with a friend who had had you know a lot of a lot of clean time and, you know, that was the first home that I had had in a long time that didn't, that felt like mine. You know, it was like, I worked, I worked to get here. So you actually had your own bed. Yes. I had my own bed. I didn't need shower shoes. 
You know, I didn't have to wear shower <laughs> shoes in the shower anymore. It was a nice feeling, feeling that, you know, that ceramic underneath the feet was a, a it was a cool feeling for the first time in a while. Yeah, for those people who have never, ever experienced anything like this, you know, you all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're grateful for a shower. You're grateful for a bed that that you can call your own. And um, it's very rewarding that you've gone through the process. And, and of course, you're alive, you're here, and now you're, you're turning it around. And so how did you get from all of this to becoming a business development person for Evoke? So my journey into working in the field was... It was kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I go to, I'm a 12 step guy. I go to meetings. I still, you know, actively participate in my recovery. And, you know, I always knew that like through the 12 step fellowship that like, I really enjoyed helping people. I enjoyed the conversations with addicts. I enjoyed like just having that, that one-on-one getting down to the nitty gritty of like what makes us tick. Um, And I was roofing at the time I was working for, you know, one of my best friends, he had a roofing company and, you know, I got up every day and went to work and you no, know, I didn't, didn't mind what I did. Uh, and a friend of mine actually opened up a, uh, some sober living in a treatment center up in New Hampshire. And, you know, he was actually my roommate at the time. And he asked, he's like, Hey, you know, would you be interested in coming to work, you know, work for us as a behavioral tech? And I said, you know, what does that entail? So I started off as like a behavioral tech, which is basically just like a, a peer to peer person for the, for the the patients and the clients to make sure that they're attending group, that they have all the things that they need. And, you know, we take them out and do activities with them and it was great. And I loved it. And, you know, I learned real quick that I, I loved working in the field and, you know, I just became like a sponge and just tried to learn as much as I could about working in the field, helping people, you know, how all the different various types of treatment. And, you know, over the years, I definitely say from the time that I got clean, there's been, you know, there's a lot of different pathways to recovery now. There's a lot of different ways that people choose to get clean and stay clean. So just staying on top of like everything that's going on, you know, whether it's like Dharma, whether it's my recovery, whether it's, you know, harm reduction, whatever it may be, and just learning to meet people where they're at and just, you know, try and help them guide them in their recovery by sharing my experience with it. And and then how did um, Evoke pick you out? I was working for another, um, I was working for another treatment center and, um, there was a guy working for us, you know, um, he passed away last year. Unfortunately he was working and I had known him since, you know, since we grew up in the same neighborhood and, you know, he called me one day, they had a, they had a, an opening and they were looking for a guy and he said, I was the guy that they were looking to hire. And, and that that's what started it over here is, you know, it was just a buddy of mine that I knew. And, and you know, he knew that I, I liked doing what I did and he could trust me. And, you know, the way he referred to me was I was one of the good guys. Yeah. Can you explain what it means to be working in the field? So working in it's I, I in all facets, facets of recovery you know working in the field whether you know detox whether it's outpatient whether it's you know residential whether it's recovery coaching there's so many different you know avenues of, of, of where people can go to get help there's drop-in centers everywhere so anything tied to people trying to get their life back on track is you know what it means to me as far as like working in the field so so at evoke do you go to work at the do you go to the recovery center in Cohasset every day or do you go to other places and try to <clears throat> find people who are ready to come to evoke 
Yeah, I go. I mean, I go to the facility once, twice a week. I run a group there on Thursdays. Um, so I still, you know, I still like to run groups and do stuff like that. And then, you know, I bounce around the community, you know, whatever events are going on, we try and try and support the community in any way that they can, you know, just kind of be that like liaison and just be that, you know, that, that vessel, you know, if someone knows that someone needs some help and they're looking to get somewhere and they feel like evokes, you know, the right place for them, then they give me a call and we try and get them and, and guide them on their path and get them going and get their feet underneath them. So you run a group. Um, is it a mixed group or is it all men? It's mixed. It's a mixed group. And of course, knowing what you know, nobody can pull the wool over your eyes because you've done everything, right? Exactly. You've been there, done that, you know, when they're bullshit and you know, when they're not, you know, and that yep. kind of thing. So uh, <clears throat> you're a good candidate for that, running that kind of group. Can you tell when somebody's just going through the motions or when people are sincere and you, you know, and you, you do one-on-ones if you think somebody is not getting it? Yeah, it's... So it's, you know, I'm very understanding of when the disease is kind of calling the shots in people because it's, I've been there and, you know, there's nothing that I haven't done or haven't tried to, to say to kind of like weasel my way out of doing what's best for me. And, you know, at the end of the day, the disease of addiction doesn't want us to do what's best for us. It wants us to do what's best for it. So it's, you know, the, the answers, the rebuttals, you know, the, just watching the disease just kind of take over the conversation from people. I can see it, you know, a mile away. And, you know, you, the only thing I can do really is pull them aside and just give them my experience and like the understanding of what that looks like. And, and I know how they feel and kind of just get eye to eye with them as I've been there. I understand exactly how you're feeling in this moment right now. Like sometimes you just got to push through it and, you know, sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't, you know, I think at the end of the day, some, when people are ready, people are ready. And they're going to hear what the, what they need to hear in that moment. Yeah, I I understand. I used to do a a large group at Bridgewater State Prison. They had about sixty people in each division, and these people were sectioned by their parents or by the local police or something because they're out of control. And I used to give them I used to give them an option. I said, "Do you want to be in an urn on the mantle when your mother walks by every day and cries when she sees the urn?" Or do you want to be at Fenway Park eating a hot dog and <clears throat> cheering or booing the Red Sox on, you know? It's your choice. You know, you'll get to decide where you where you want to go. And and um I'm sure you you referenced your daughter as being a one of your motivational things to mm -hmm. um get it going. Now when they when they come in to evoke, let's say the first week, can you can you kind of Give us give somebody who's never been in a rehab center. Kind of, is that was that the correct terminology? Evoke as a rehab center. Yeah, detox. Yeah, detox re rehabilitation <clears throat> center for sure. Yeah. Okay. Can you give us the the kind of what what happens the first week? The first, I mean, Thanks. so the detox portion is you know is um is very you know it, it, I guess it's dependent on the severity of someone's use, like how long they've been using. The substances they've been using, you know, alcohol detoxes can be very severe. Any kind of detox from any kind of like benzodiazepine can be very severe um, on the, you know, the, uh, the critical where they need the medical detox. And obviously opiate detox is very painful. You know, it, uh, you don't feel well at all. So your first week, I mean, I can kind of give you the lowdown as to what you come in. You walk into the facility your first day, you get to the lobby. You have the nurse and staff will come out, 
take all your vitals, make sure that you're okay to, to, to enter the facility. You do your admission and then you get on the unit. And what that looks like is that nurses will, will check on you um, throughout your, your, your time and your day. They take your vitals to make sure that you're doing okay. And you'll be medicated, you know, as needed, depending on what your vitals look like, how you're feeling, how you're presenting. You know, our nursing staff is amazing so that they're always working with the patients to make sure that they're comfortable. And, you know, the first week is is typically very difficult. Your first 72 hours, I would say, is some of the hardest, you know, of being in treatment where it's that fight or flight moment where, you know, you don't feel so great and you want to hit the eject button because, you know, if you leave, you can go feel better. Um, so it's, it's that first 72 hours is definitely very, very important to be able to kind of hold on to that seat and just kind of stay there. And typically once people get past that first few days, I, you know, they tend to come around a little bit. They're feeling a little bit better little by little. Maybe they're starting to sleep a little bit after a week. Um, but that first week is just getting them through the, the really, really tough parts of, of the, the medical detox. Basically, basically, they're going through hell the first week. Exactly. Now, now do they... You have, is it, you said medication, so it's medically assisted treatment. So do they do Suboxone or Bupropamine or not Methadone? Necessarily, not necessarily. We, we do that. We offer all that as far as, you know, for the opiates, we, we, we offer a Methadone, um, Suboxone, Subutex, or they, they don't have to take any of that as well. If they choose to, to take a different protocol because they don't want to take that, that's entirely up to them. So we offer a few different protocols for what they feel like they're going to be comfortable for on the opiate um, side of it. And, you know, alcohol is, you know, depending on, on allergies, you typically get Ativan and Keppra and, and those kind of, those kind of detox medications to make sure that the alcohol withdrawal is done safely. Okay. So they get past the first week and how many make it past the first week out of 20 oh, patients? I mean I, could, I mean, I would say nine out of 10, probably more, maybe a little bit more. I mean, a lot of people do make it. I mean, I'd say, I'd say about nine out of 10 typically come in and make it at least past the, past the first week. That's a good percentage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the detox portion is tough. You get them past that first few days and, and you, you love them up and, you know, we're, we're definitely a mom and pop type of facility. So it's, you know, you have that kind of like family vibe within the staff and, and all that. So, you know, being able to love them up too at the end of the day on top of getting them comfortable, it goes a long way. Right. Now you get, now the second week, what are we doing the second week? So if they choose to stay for, you know, and they transfer over to the residential portion of the program, they come over and what they do is, is they have a little bit more, um, they're expected to do a little bit more once they hit the residential. So on detox, they're offered groups. You're, you're able to go to three, four groups a day. Uh, if you choose to go, if you're feeling up for it, obviously there's not a ton of pressure because we know that people aren't feeling the greatest. Some people can't even get out of bed. So there's no su super high expectation. If you're feeling good and you want to attend groups, we definitely encourage it for sure. Um, when you get on the residential side, definitely look to, you know, have people participate more in the groups. And then you also have like a, a, a therapist that you'll meet with a clinician that you meet with once a week to start like one some one-on-one -on -one therapy while you're there. So you'll be over there, you'll attend, you know, four or five groups uh, a day. We have, uh, you know, commitments, 12-step fellowships come in on every single night. So yeah, you have a commitment that you attend while you're there. You're able to use the gym that we have downstairs. So you can start to kind of start to feel a little bit better and want to get you more moving a little bit more, try and get the endorphins going, get you down to the gym if you want to. 
just to kind of get you to start feel better physically. Cause that first week is, 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 is the physical part. Then it's the mental part. So after you're physically feeling better, we start to attack that mental aspect of it to hopefully keep you on the right path and just not let that mind kind of wander off about thinking about getting out of here as fast as you can. Yeah. And you give them, and, and as I suppose somebody in these groups that you're talking about when you get out, you know, you're getting prepared for that. Don't go back to what you were doing before. You know, um, I know in the, in Bridgewater, we used to tell them, delete everybody in your phone. Yeah. Delete yeah. all your drug dealers. Do it now. Do it while you're so do it now. And, and let's do it, you know, and make sure that anybody and everybody that you deal with, that you had drugs with or you sold drugs with or they bought drugs for you or whatever, delete their names and you got to start fresh. And, and to some degree, I think it's good when, I had 50-50 feeling about whether you want to, you know, start new in another place, you know, go to California and <clears throat> and start over again with, yep. without all those familiar faces and familiar people around you. So there's no pressure. On the other hand, you know, if your parents are still in the picture or your brother and sister and you've got people you can trust and rely on, sometimes it's better to be next to them, you know, as long as you're going to behave. But most these most people I know that ended up in detox have burnt every bridge imaginable, borrowed their credit cards without authority. They used their car. They used their cash. They took away the change next to the bed, you know. And then <clears throat> I saw I was just at a conference and a woman was saying that when she came home from work, she had a 60 inch color television. And when she came home from work, the television was gone and her son left her a note saying, Myra, I'll buy you a new TV in two weeks when I get paid. Took the whole TV and sold it. You know, she was like, it's like, um, and this, the average person can't imagine that anybody would do that, but you'll do anything. You know, that's, that's the thing, you know? And so uh, <clears throat> I had a coin collection and I got robbed and, and the person that was addicted that took my coin collection didn't even realize that the coins were worth 20 times what the face value was on them. It was just spending them, you know, just like a quarter was a quarter. Never mind the fact that it was a silver quarter, you know, and things, you know, they did not even coherent to that sort of thing. They just want to do whatever I can do to get the cash the fastest. So how long would the person stay? Now you've done detox the first week, the second week you're in the residential. Uh, would you go <clears throat> 30 days or would we go? Typically 28 days between detox and, and, and a residential stay is right around 28 days. And then, uh, you know, then we look to stepping them up to a higher, you know, a lower level of care afterwards if they're looking to do some kind of outpatient programming or something like that where, you know, we feel like they can use it because, you know, we always refer to, you know, inpatient treatment is like the bubble, you know, you're safe with us, you're, you're there and, and you have people around you and there's really no outside stresses to kind of, you know, everyone comes in with some stuff, but there's nothing really in your face to kind of get you stressed where you may not be able to handle it. And your first thought would be to pick up that drink or, or, or that substance in order to feel better or to deal with the stress where you don't have that with us, where, you know, we look to set people with some outpatient therapy just to, to be able to kind of have that accountability, have those people around you, those like-minded people around you. I'm a, like I said, I'm a big 12 step guy. I always try and 
push people to kind of go to some kind of meetings, whether it's 12 steps, something to be around some like-minded people. Cause kind of like you just said, Tony, it's, you know, we, we have to delete the people, places and things is something that, that I learned a long time ago that had to change when I got clean and I had to go through and, and wipe everybody out. I had burnt every bridge and anybody that was in my life when I got clean was not good for me. They were all people I used to use with. So everything had to change. So going places where people were trying to do the same thing like me was very, very important for me. So I always like to push, like, go be around other addicts and go be around, like, other alcoholics that are trying to do this and get better. Um, this way you can find your, your, your network and your people and your fellowship to kind of guide you through those moments and, and go gravitate towards people that have some, some, some time under their belt because they're going to understand how to get through the hard times that are going to come, especially in early recovery, you're going to face some adversity and, and the peaks and valleys that come along with that, where you, you have some people that have been through it and can literally just kind of guide you, you know, by the hand. And this is how you get through that without having to pick up. And I'm, I'm super grateful that I did that. I, I, I gravitated towards like a lot of really positive guys, a lot of guys that were doing some amazing things at life that were good dads and, you know, building their careers and getting their credit fixed and doing all these little things that I didn't know how to do. And I had to ask for help. You know, I had to not be afraid to be like, how did you guys do that? Cause I don't know how, you know, and especially being a man in recovery, you know, I grew up with, I didn't ask for help. I figured it out, you know, my, my own for a very, very long time. So asking for help and asking another man for help was very, was very difficult for me, but it was humbling. very humbling. Exactly. Very humbling. <laughs> very humbling. Twice yes. a humble pie on a daily basis. You know, I needed to, I needed to eat that humble pie every day because I didn't know it. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't know anything. And that was the, the one thing that someone told me when I coming in was like, just, you don't know anything. As much as you think you know, just go in there with like, I don't know anything and always remain teachable and watch how much better your life gets. And I had nothing to lose, Tony. I had nothing to lose. I had everything to gain by listening to these people. Yeah, the biggest thing you could have lost was your life. Yeah, yeah. That was the yeah. last thing. That was the only thing I had I had left, you know, as far as material or, or people, I had nothing else to lose other than myself. So it's why not? If I want to keep myself, I need to do certain things and... These people have obviously done it and they're, they're smiling, they're happy, their lives are good. So I want some of that, you know, I yeah. followed the wrong people when I was doing the wrong thing. I'm also finding the right people when I'm trying to do the right thing. It's good that you're smart enough to make that observation, yeah. you know, going from tough guy age, to going from right. tough guy to humble pie. I think yeah. my age had a lot to do with it too, where I was 31 when I got clean. And I, you know, because I had used for so long, I had a lot of experience just kind of being running amok and like I had my time, I had had my time, I had had my fun, I had had all, you know, the X, Y, and Z that comes along with that. I had fun in the beginning, obviously it wasn't fun at the end, but I think having my daughter and kind of just being at like, the, you know, in my early thirties was like, dude, enough is enough. You know, I kind of had that enough is enough. You're 31 years old. You still got your whole life ahead of you. Like get it now, listen to these people and you know, you still got a, you still got a lot of years to enjoy life. You basically lost ten years of your life, <clears throat> no longer that you didn't have any growth or anything. So the other people who were thirty-one were doing things that with their brain was growing and and absorbing lots of new things, but you were in that same rut, doing the same thing day after day. <clears throat> you didn't get to grow like you like you could have. So. So now, um, if, let's say somebody's been there a month. Uh, let's go back to most people who's been living homeless on the street. They don't have insurance. 
Yeah. And and they obviously don't have the kind of money it costs to go to Evoke. Evoke is a private facility, so it's if you're private pay, it's quite expensive. So how do people maneuver that? <clears throat> what is the program for this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't for, you know, I didn't have insurance when I got clean, so I had to navigate, you know, the you know, the Mass Health or the free the DPH beds that Mass Health has to offer. So, you know, when someone reaches out to me if they can't afford, you know, one thing with, with Evoke is that we scholarship a lot of people, right? If we have the ability to scholarship people, we're going to scholarship them. So, if someone calls and we have a scholarship, you know, available, one hundred percent, we'll take them in and give them a shot. Uh, if not, we just pull together our resources as a staff. And just get them a bed. Like I don't. If anybody calls, I'll find them a bed. One way or another, I can get them a bed somewhere else. No matter what it takes. I've called fifteen facilities in a day, mass health facilities, to find a bed for people. Whatever it takes. Because I know how how desperate I was when I was making those calls, and like I just wanted help so bad. So I try to never forget like how what that looks like. So if people call in and they don't have insurance or they don't have the means, you know, if we can find them a bed, we find them a bed. If we can scholarship, we scholarship them. But we, we, we try not to leave anybody without getting help that they need that day, that moment. Okay. And again, my, my opinion of Evoke is like, it's like going camping <clears throat> for going camping, except for you got a nurse and there's a doctor on the facility, right? This doctor comes every now and then and check up on you and you have, all kinds of people who are in the same mindset that you are, they want to get sober. And so they, it's, 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 it can be very rewarding and very refreshing. And then at the end of the day, you, you get out there. Now you, you mentioned that you've been to all these different, when you first come out, you go to a, a halfway house or is it a quarter way house? Or what's the first, um, the first line once you get out of the, out of the facility out of our out of evoke yeah what would you do where would you put them a place the people so we typically we look to send it i mean depending on you know kind of get a gauge on what they wanted what they're willing to do right because willingness at the end of the day is the most important part of of being in recovery if you don't have the willingness to do certain things and to do the things you don't want to do you tend to kind of set yourself back a little bit um, because you may feel like I know better and this is, you know, my way is going to work. Well, in all reality, my way got me into treatment. My way got me into jail. My way got me homeless. So taking that, like, I know better mentality, like we were talking about, like, I don't really know anything, taking that mentality out of it. So you get a gauge on what people want to do. And, you know, we always suggest, you know, aftercare, you know, whatever that may be, whatever their circumstances are, do they have to go back to work? Are they, you know, are they going back home? They have nowhere to live. Do they need sober living? So we kind of just get a gauge on a, on a case-to-case -case basis as to the client's needs and the patient's needs. And we set, we try and set them up for success and we give them options. Look, these are your options. This is what you can do. Uh, and, you know, we always suggest get as much treatment in as you can and watch yourself be successful. And, you know, more times than not, people do accept the help. They do want to do more treatment. They want to go to aftercare, whether it's sober living, whether it's, you know, some kind of step down to a partial hospitalization program, whatever it may be. Some people are like, I don't need the help. I'm just going back to work and that's going to suffice for me. And, you know, we, we try and set them up with some kind of therapy closer to home and, and go from there. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's up to the patient and what they want to do. We give them options and, and, you know, they choose to do what they, what they want from there. What do you think the percentages of people that go back to using after they're done with a month? Oh, man, 
That's tough, Tony. That's a tough one. I mean, I guess it all depends on what they decided to do after that month. Um, I think that, I mean, the old, the old, the old percentages were like one in 35, but I know for a fact, like from my era that that wasn't even the case. Cause it was three people, two other people, myself included that I was in detox with that have been sober ever since we went to detox. So you're talking three out of 30. So that was one out of 10, right. That, you know, that stayed, stayed sober. Oh. So you're saying that a large amount of them don't stay sober? A large amount don't. Yeah. Unfortunately, a large amount don't. A large, a large amount don't. And, and I think it just comes to what you're willing to do. Like how much work are you willing to put into this? It takes a lot of work to stay sober. It takes a lot of work to dig into why I, I choose to, to use substances and why I feel the way that I do and why substances seem to be the solution for my problems at the end of, you know, they created more problems for me, but in my mind for so many years, that was the solution to all my problems. It took everything away. And then when you take those away, now I, now I'm the problem. Now I need to figure out what the, the solution is without using drugs or alcohol. Some people, you know, don't want to do the work that it takes. Some people do. Some people start to do the work, Tony, and they stop doing the work because they think once they start to feel better and they start getting things and life starts getting flowing and you got the job and maybe you get the, the wife, the kids back, you got the nice car, you get all these things and all of a sudden you don't have to do the work anymore. But for me, you know, personally, I know that I have to continue to do the work if I want to keep keep the life that, I, that I've built over the past 11 years. I'm scared not to. I'm scared not to do the things that because I don't want to ever go back to the way I, the way I was living. I mean, there's lots of temptation around you all the time. Yeah. It's, and, and that's why you don't, I know now you keep talking about the 12 step program and the 12 step program in my mind is, is an AA program. And so is there a, is there a program that's specifically designed for opioids or people no. who were on heroin or anything, it's, or is it still the same? It's all encompassing. I mean, back in the day, I mean, you know, my first 12 step meeting I ever went to, you know, I, I, you know, not to talk, it was an AA meeting and it was, you know, it was old school. It was different back then. And, you know, I kind of identified as like an addict and, you know, they kind of, you know, back then maybe some certain meetings were like, Hey, this is a different, you know, there's different fellowships for that, whether it's, you know, NA or AA, you know, Narcotics Anonymous is another 12 step fellowship. And, you know, I found one, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm an NA member. I love going to NA and I, I know a lot of people that go to AA that were opiate addicts. So it's, it's all encompassing now these days. I mean, it's, it's so rampant out there that how can you not? I think at some point people just have, you just, people want help. They go where they need the help. They go where they can get the help and everyone's just not willing, you know, willing to help them. Not, I may have just walked into a meeting and, and caught one person that decided to tell me that I didn't belong there. Might've been the one person that, that felt that way that night. And that was it. Well, I was going to say, uh, um, I always thought NA meetings were much harder to find than AA meetings. They are. They are. They're not as they're, they're not as um, abundant as as AA meetings are for sure. You know, where I got, you know, where I was got clean, there was a lot in that area, so I could find one every single night within you know two miles of me, which was which was great. And I, you know, I had a lot of friends that were had gone and were doing very well, so. I just, like I said, I gravitated towards the guys that I knew were doing the right thing. And wherever you go to get your help, you go to get your help. As long as you're doing the work, like you're going to get better. Yeah. I mean, I went to GA meetings. Yeah. Um, I'm about 
40, 40 years sober now from that. That's amazing. And, uh, but the, there's been this huge turnaround. Now you don't need to find a bookie. Mm-hmm. They're advertising on TV, FanDuel and yeah. and all these devices. You can MGM bets and everything. And it's like you can't even enjoy a football game anymore without coming in at halftime saying bet on this team and which one's going to score the first touchdown and all this kind of nonsense, you know, and it's like, I think it's going to be the next biggest problem. Yeah. We're going to have so many people who are going to go broke mm-hmm. because of GA, because of gambling. And uh, I think it's going to be the next major issue in this, in the United States, because also if you're an addict of any type and you're used to being on op- opioids or heroin and you go broke from GA, you're going to think that, oh, well, I can solve this problem. All I do is got to go back, take an oxys or something, you know, and um, I think it, all just, goes hand in hand. it all goes hand in hand, Tony. It really does. It's it's the disease of addiction, alcoholism. It's all encompassing. It's not just a substance or a drink. It's it's the behaviors that come along with it. And it's anything that makes me feel different is bad for me, whether it's gam- and gambling. A, it's a very big part of my addiction as well. Gambling was a huge, huge part of, of my, my childhood. Very big part of, of, you know, my adulthood, very big part of my addiction. And it's similar. I can shop too much. I can go to the gym too much. I can do all these things too much because I, maybe I don't like the way I feel about myself. So I know what's going to get me out of that feeling in that moment. And maybe I shouldn't be spending that money. Maybe I don't need that 20th pair of sneakers. Right. Sneakers can be a huge addiction for, for myself. You know, sneakers and gambling is a huge, huge part of my addiction. It's something that I've worked on very, very thoroughly over the past 11 years to kind of get under wraps and, and understand that, like, I can't I can't gamble in safety either. I can't go to a casino and, and shut it off like I see my friends can do. They can go bring 200 bucks and they're fine. I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing it. And I understand That's that. Right. So I just try not to go. You know, <laughs> That's it. No, I, I get that totally because um, I do a lot of trade shows in Las Vegas and there's casinos everywhere. Yeah. You can hear those machines ping, 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 you know, when somebody's hitting the hitting the, one of the machines or something. And and um, if I go to one of those places, I actually break into a sweat just trying to not do it, you know. So occasionally people give me a couple of quarters. They say, oh, hey, put this in a slot machine for me. I said, yeah. no, I'd rather put it in the bubblegum machine. I know I'm going <laughs> to definitely be a winner. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I just, I can't do it. But and I, my wife now, she understands. And, she, you know, she, we watch a lot of sports and it's just awful. You know, the, you know, the fan duel is everywhere. And yeah. it's yeah. like, um, it, and I don't think, I think what's going to have to happen is just like we did with cigarettes. You're going to have to outlaw the gambling places on TV stop showing them so much. You know, they have this little thing in print underneath that says, if you're gambling is your problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or something, you know, well, it's going to be everybody's problem because as you know, you can win a race, but you can't beat the races. That's it. House always wins. That's right. You know, saying goes, you never bet on anything that, that um, eats while you sleep. Right. You know, meaning racehorses or dogs, you know, so they, um, it's just in, eventually you're going to not have enough money to beat the house, right. house to beat you yep. and then build those beautiful casinos because everybody was winning. Right. 
Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's when I keep telling I keep telling my friends, you know. Yeah, they always tell you about the oh, I, I went down to Foxwoods and I won seventeen hundred dollars. Well, yeah, but you lost five thousand dollars the last three times you went, you know. And uh, you only remember the time you won because that's when your endorphins, that's just like drugs. That's when the endorphins came out and you got high, got high on that, that winning. I mean, my first horse race uh, was I bet a horse to show when I was 12 years old <clears throat> or even 10. I'm not sure how old I was. And I bet $2, which was a lot of money back in 1956 or 57. And I won 20 cents. The horse showed and it paid nothing. I won $2, got $2 and 20 cents back. But that was the, that if I had lost that race, my life would have been different. I would have lost the whole $2, but no, I won the 20 cents and that was the high. And if, if anybody can relate to <clears throat> winning Pacino, uh, winning uh, at bingo or any, I mean, the bingo parlors are always full, right? That's the way, you know, a lot of women get to, do the gambling right there. And now they can play Keno at any club and they can go play the lottery. Everybody's going to win a billion dollars this week. You know, they're buying uh, scratch cards. And I was in Seven uh, Eleven, uh, and I watched a woman spend her whole paycheck on scratch cards. Yep. She'd buy, she'd buy a bunch and go outside and go through them and, win one of them and get $50 more and buy another $50 worth of scratch cards, go back out to the car and just keep going until there was nothing left. That was me. That's exactly what I used to do. Same. I used to walk. I used to take the bus when I lived, I lived in Lynn, my first apartment when I got clean was in Lynn. And I remember like I was still struggling with the, with the, with the gambling part of it. When I, you know, I was 18 months clean, two years clean. And I, you know, that, that part was still very much alive and well. And I would get off the bus on payday and I would stop and I'd get like a Red Bull and I would get like a Snickers or something like that. And I would be like, all right, let me get, you know, five, $10 tickets. And I would like go up the entire street and I would keep hitting every store thinking that I was going to win at the next store. That mentality of like the next one, it was the same thing as chasing that high from getting high. It was like that next one's going to make me feel the way that that the first one made me feel. And it, it never ended up that way. I was always chasing that feeling. I had this like analogy, you know, not to get like too much into description, but when I used to get, when I used to go get the drugs that I needed to get, so I didn't feel sick anymore, I had to go to the bathroom. I would always have to go to the bathroom when I was on my way to get, get my drugs. And when I go to casinos, it's the same feeling. So like when I go to casinos, I get the feeling of like, I need to go to the bathroom as soon as I get there. And it's my body telling me that like, what you're going to do is not good for you. You should not be going to do this. And, and it's like a warning sign that you need to not do this. And, Obviously, you know, I did it for so many years with with the with the drugs as I ignored that 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 warning sign. And I did it for you know a while of being clean as well. I would just continue to go and ignore the warning signs, knowing that this feeling is gonna give me the same feeling that that getting high did. I when I would leave the casinos, it was the same feeling as me getting high. I felt like I had lost everything. I felt like, you know, I felt like I wasn't a good person. I felt like a scumbag, I felt like a dirty person. It was the same way I can tie it exactly to the same feelings. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's interesting. We never discussed the gambling factor mm -hmm. in the beginning of our conversation, but now I see that you, it definitely played a big part with you. 
Mm-hmm. The, uh, all encompassing. You know, I watched. You know, I watched it with my mother. My mother, you know, she she had a gambling problem. She liked to gamble, and I watched it, and I, I I knew what it looked like, and I knew what a gambling addiction looked like, and I inherited that part of it for sure. You know, and it is what it is. You know, I learn, and and I I I have a lot of friends in recovery that struggled with gambling, like on, on a much higher level than I even struggled with it. You know, on a on a financial standpoint of losing everything, you know, while being clean and sober. So I can talk to them, you know, a lot about when I get that itch, if I feel like, oh, I think I can go. And if I can just pick up the phone and just be like, hey, you know, <laughs> how do you do it? Like, uh, how do you not go when, you know, you, you, you got money in the bank, everything's going okay, nothing's going wrong. I just want to go have fun. And that's just the lie that the disease tells me. It's like, you're not just going to go have fun. You're going to go there and you're going to hate yourself. Cause you're not going to stop at two, 300 bucks. You're going to keep digging in your pocket, digging in your pocket, chasing that money every single time. And it happens every time. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, when the Massachusetts came out with the, with the numbers game where you can bet four straight, the first three, last three, a uh, combination of all four, you know, you can tell I've been around that before, you know, and yeah. you can say to yourself, well, I'm only going to do $2 a day, or I'm only going to do $5 a day. But then you, you find yourself at 10 o'clock trying to figure out what station you're going to see the number on. Your, your, whole, your whole night, you, you're waiting for that number, just like you're waiting to find out whether the Cleveland Indians won the beat the Anaheim Angels at 11 o'clock at night because they, they're playing on the West Coast. Back in the day when I was around, there was, there was no internet. So you, you, you used to call the Herald 1-800-SPORTS-LINE, and the Herald would give you the would give you the the lines and, and at seven o'clock and then they would tell you who won which games at and you just keep calling and it keeps rotating and changing and as the games get over. And that that's almost like the super sickness because you can't do anything but wait to get those scores. You know I used to listen to WCBS from New York because if you bet Aqueduct or Belmont you could go down and, and every 15, 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after the hour, they would actually give the results of the state of the races at mm-hmm. Belmont. So, so I would bet Belmont and Aqueduct. I'd get the New York Post and get the post lines and everything first thing in the morning. And then what you do, you spend half the day studying. You know, if I, I decided yep. that if I took that energy and I decided to go out and make sales and put it into money, that I'd be, yep. I, I could make way more money. And that's <laughs> fortunately I, I took my advice and that's what I did when I was about 28 or 29, I, I changed gears. So, um, but it's a long story, but this is your story. I, uh, do want it's the ritual. I mean, I, I love hearing it Tony cause it's, I, I, the ritual that comes along with any kind of addiction, it's, there's a ritual, you know, like I used to, the way I did my drugs was this pretty much the same way. Every time I had a ritual of getting it, setting it up and doing it. And I remember getting up every Sunday, the ritual for the longest time was get up, go get my Duncan's coffee, go get the Herald, sit down, look at the lines, look at all, do all this research and figure out who I'm going to place my bets on every single Sunday. It was the same thing for, you know, quite a few years. So all that addiction, like I, it's so intertwined and I never really understood it until I really started diving into like my own addiction of, of how it manifests itself in so many different ways in my life. And I'm, you know, like I always have super grateful for understanding that like I can, 
I don't have to differentiate certain things that I enjoy doing. I can kind of like stop, play it out. Like, am I acting because like I want to do this stuff because it makes me feel better? Or is this something that I truly enjoy to do and it's not going to implode my life? It's not going to, you know, I have no chance of wrecking my life with it. Uh, it's I love hearing that stuff because it's it's something that I don't think it's talked about a lot as far as like, especially I think a lot of addicts and alcoholics struggle with gambling because it is so accessible. It's not as frowned upon, you know, at, at, by any means, you know, so it's it's definitely it's definitely a topic that, like you said, it's going to be, I think, up and coming a lot more in the sense. It's going to be a real problem. At least at yes. least the people can bet they have to have a credit card or they have to have the money on file to bet it. Where in the old days you call right. the bookie and you're running the line and yep. all of a sudden you might find yourself three, four thousand dollars in the red and it now comes Sunday, 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 Sunday night, and you know <laughs> they're gonna be come looking for you on Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, you might have to go find a loan shark and borrow three thousand dollars at five percent a week interest, which is hundred and fifty dollars a week. You know, and you pay that forever. You're never going to pay it off because you're never going to have all three thousand dollars at once. You know, and then you, you gamble again, and then you're going to find another loan check. Before you know it, you're just wrapped up, going crazy. You know, so the next thing, the jewelry store looks good. You know, so figure the way, some way you can get out of it. You can't get out of it. It's like, a, and that's what they like. They like that. You know, to keep it going. And um, my father was an owner and trainer of racehorses. So I was at the track when I was six, seven, eight years old, you know. But uh, fortunately, I I am who I am today, and I'm. I think it's probably closer to. Now that I'm older, it's probably closer to fifty years of sobriety from back in those times. Like it's like another life ago, you know. Right. So, well, we're just about out of time. Is there anything that you'd like to say to our audience, and especially guys who are not where you are that might be listening to the show or how about parents of somebody who's using, what would you give it? What kind of advice would you give to them? Ooh, so for parents, you know, being a parent, obviously my kids are, are, are younger, uh, you know, it, you can't force somebody to do something that they're not ready to do. And that's the unfortunate part of, of, of this is that when people are ready, people are ready. We can push them. We can try and guide them. We can give them all these, these resources. We can put them in the nicest facilities. We can be around the nicest people. Unfortunately, if they're not ready, they're not ready. And, and their process is their process. Just like, you know, the family members, you know, they have to heal as well and they have their process in this as well. So it's a family disease. Everybody suffers when one person in the family is, is used and everybody feels it. I think as far as the family members, when they have just try and be there, you love them, you love them, meet them where they're at, try and help them and do the best you can. And don't put too much pressure on yourselves as, as thinking that you can't fix them. You're part of the problem that this is your fault. Like it's not, it's not anybody's fault that somebody chooses to pick up a substance. We all make a choice at the end of the day and we had a choice to do it or don't. And we felt like doing it for whatever reason. And that's on the, the person that struggles with the, with the disease in order to figure that out or what their reason is and, and why they, why they felt like using it. You know, um, and to anybody listening and my biggest thing is just give yourself a shot, believe in yourself, you know, don't give up on yourself. Everybody here that struggles with this deserves a much better life deserves to have 
uh, 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 freedom uh, and some peace on a daily basis. And peace was something that I learned early in recovery that I didn't even know existed of the ability to put my head down on a pillow at night and just go to sleep without the, the racing thoughts, knowing I didn't hurt anybody else, or hurt myself, do my family wrong, do my loved ones wrong. Those are the biggest things for me is just give yourself a shot, ask for some help, that humble pie that we talked about, just practice a little humility and tell people that you're struggling and, and, and listen to people who know what they're talking about. Okay. Thank you very much, Eddie. And Eddie, I'm gonna, I don't want to kill your last name. It's Bahana. 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 Yeah. So we've been listening to Eddie Bahana, who is a uh, works for Evoke Wellness over in Cohasset. You want to give out a phone number so if somebody's listening that they, they want to call Evoke, they can. They can call me directly. My number is six one seven. 949-1406. My phone's on 24-7. If anybody's struggling, anybody just needs some advice, please feel free to reach out to me. Now that they just went and got a pencil, say that number again. 617-949-1406. Okay, 1406. All right. I want to thank you, Eddie, for taking the time out of your day. I really appreciate you and all the things that you had to say. And I wish you the best of luck going forward. And saves that yes now you're saving lives, which is a you've already you've saved yours and now it's you're, you're giving back by saving others, and that's really good and that's why we call this show Courage to Hope. Eddie had the had the courage to do what he had to do to get sober, and he's given other people hope going forward. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tommy. I appreciate it.
WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston.